0: Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds.
1: And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone.
0: All right. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. Nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. I know where it is. Following program produced by Magic Bad Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network, I am... At least the last time I looked. Legendary Burl Bear, that man over there. That's uh, Mark Boyer. Hello. Back Checker, co-host. On the phone, Stephen Singular. Stephen, great to have you on the show again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, you've been yep. here about a thousand times. Uh, for uh-huh. those of you who were just joined us, uh, Stephen has written some of the greatest true crime books uh, in the universe. He's covered just about every case you can think of, from O.J. to John Benet Ramsey to... Uh,
2: by, oh. uh blind um, torture kill. Well,
0: yeah, blind torture kill. Uh,
2: okay. Everything
0: you can think. Warren Jeffrey.
2: Yeah, all Jeffers. of them. They
0: close Drop by his house and visit him. You know, later in the evening. <laughs> Thank you for writing yeah. books about him. First book vaulted you into sudden fame. That was. Uh, tell us about the first book you did and how it affected you. The first book I wrote. Well, the first true crime book that. Uh,
1: the first true crime book I wrote was called Talk to Death. The Life and Murder of Allen Berg. If you've seen the movie Talk Radio by Oliver Stone that came out in 1989, it's a loose kind of interpretation of that book. Uh, so it was about a Jewish uh, talk show host in Denver who was gunned down in 1984 by a band of neo Nazis from the Northwest. Uh, cases resonated right until the present moment. Uh, we've obviously seen uh, the rise in recent years of a lot of more activity of the radical right, and uh, the people who killed Berg are in some quarters sort of celebrated by some of those people, and... and uh, that case uh, has obviously just had a place in the American consciousness ever since. The book that was written that became the blueprint for the assassination of Berg was called The Turner Diaries. It came out in 1978 by a man named William Pierce. And it was a viciously racist, anti-Semitic uh, novel about sort of eliminating America from minorities, gays. Feminists, etc., uh, and the group that killed Berg was called the Order. There was a group in the in the novel called the Order, and the real life Order based themselves on that. And then one of the people who picked up on the book was Timothy McVeigh. Uh, he used to sell that book at uh, book fairs around the Midwest. One of the scenes in the uh, in the book in the novel is of a guy who uh, gets a truck, fills it full of explosives, takes it to a federal building, and detonates it at nine in the morning. And as we all know, that's exactly what McVeigh did in, in 1995, uh, killing 168 people. Yeah. So that book and the Berg assassination have, have really had legs going forward uh, in our society.
2: Mark, uh, we talked ahead, about it uh, on a previous uh, visit of yours that I have uh, a cousin who worked in that building. She was on the other side. Her office was on the other side, and she lost uh, a great number of her friends and colleagues in that explosion.
0: Yeah. everything ties together here on this show. Yeah, well, yeah, she was in her office when the bomb went off. Wow.
1: Oh, wow. She was. She was someone you knew? She's my cousin cousin oh okay okay yeah yeah, yeah, her yeah husband
2: was a state senator
1: Yes,
0: yeah, see so that book also changed your life i mean all of a sudden you became a very well-known true crime author
1: yeah no it, it definitely did change my life and uh it got quite a bit of attention and, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a theme that I have followed in subsequent books um, over the years. Um, we've talked about the O.J. case on this show at length, but, you know, I had an involvement in that directly because of my writing of that book. And um, so it's, it definitely has played a role in my life ever since.
0: Now, a lot of times, like when I had my first serious true crime book, all of a sudden, I was, uh, had a New York Times bestseller. And that surprised me and my publisher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that certainly changes your image, shall we say, in the yeah. in the publishing world and in the uh, the whole genre world. I don't know what the proper expression would be, but uh, yeah. it changes your whole image. Uh, that can either be right. a real delight or it can be uh, undelightful, depending on how it clashes with your own self-image. How did that affect you?
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's part of the, the new book that I've written called The Heart of Violence. Uh, it came out a, a few months ago. Uh, from, a, from a professional point of view, you know, it was a very good thing to do. I mean, true crime, of course, now is, is everywhere. And all the time, but back in the mid '80s, it was—you know—there had been some very prominent true crime books, but it wasn't anywhere near as pervasive as it is today. But as I write about in the new in the new book, which is very personal, uh, I—the book came out in 1987, and I was having kind of a a personal crisis. Uh, Not so much around the book, but around a lot of other things that were, you know, surfacing within me that had been there for a long time and festering. And and so I, I went on a nationwide book tour. You know, they don't do those anymore, but I went from New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, to LA, San Francisco, and points between. And so there was kind of an irony in the sense that You know, what did I always want to do? I wanted to write a book, and I wanted it to be a success. And I wrote it, and it was a success. And I thought, well, you know, this is the road to happiness (laughs) and, you know, uh, fulfillment and all of those things. And the opposite sort of turned out to be true. I mean, I was just sort of... Coming unglued for a variety of reasons, and so it was very hard to do the book tour. I kind of had to hold myself together. I remember waking up one morning in March of '87 in Cleveland and sort of, <laughs> sort of losing it. But you know, I got through it, and time went on, and the sort of crises, crisis that I was dealing with or not dealing with, was becoming more and more intense, and i I had you know gone been in I'd lived in New York City and then lived in Denver here for a while and and uh, I'd gone in and out of therapy, and I had found it to not just be not enough to to do me much good, which is not to put down therapy, but for my own situation, it wasn't really getting me anywhere. You know what it might be? I had
0: this said to me is, "You're too smart for therapy. <laughs> uh, but what? <laughs> What was that you're too smart for therapy
1: well I don't know about that but i i was i was what I felt was what I felt was was that i I knew enough about psychology or whatever to know that, you know, there are parts of us that are unconscious. And, I mean, we've been told that by Freud for the last 120 years or something and others uh, along with him. And so I, I thought, well, that's probably true. And, you know, if you're going to a therapist and you're unconscious of your, you know, deeper problems or issues and how can you articulate that to somebody? And so it seemed like to me, like just kind of a, a dead end. And uh, so I was, uh, you know, that's, that was kind of the state I was in when that, when that book uh, was written. The other thing I learned about it is that I am the, the invaluable person, I have this saying that in, when you write a true crime book, you, you, There has to be one person who knows the truth or some of the truth who, who, and who's willing to, to tell you that. Yeah. And in this case, it was Ellenberg's ex-wife, Judith Berg, and she was a, a great source of information. But I don't know if you've experienced this, girl, but I've experienced it a n- n- number of times. But when somebody gets killed or, you know, dies in that way very unexpectedly, and you kind of come along and want to know the story and everything, you you kind of become a stand-in, in in a way, for the dead person. And people project, you know, a lot of ragged emotions, feelings, unresolved issues, all of those things on you, and that sort of began to happen in that book. That was one side of it. The other side of it is that I was investigating neo-Nazis. And that's, you know, that can uh, be somewhat unpleasant. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, I was got threats and things like that. I was betraying my race as a white man. And and that brought on more psychological stress, et cetera. So I didn't really have a mechanism at that point for sort of doing this kind of work where there, you have to develop some distance between yourself the subject matter and the people, because you know, when when folks get murdered, it leaves behind a lot of, of ragged stuff, and so that, in combination with the other things I'm talking about, sort of led to a crisis point. And uh, so I write in the new book that you know I, I uh, my goal in life after 15 years of journalism, you know, was to write this book, write a book, and have it work and i did and in the winter of 1988 which was approximately a year after the book came out i i just sort of had a breakdown and i i write in the book that you know i was i i was just falling apart and i didn't leave the house and i didn't want to see people and i didn't just kind of sat there with my dog and one day I, there was a shopping center nearby and i i walked i wanted to walk over and buy an oatmeal cookie. Uh-huh. Good thing, yeah. <laughs> for, for a little treat for yeah. the coffee, and I just I got I got like halfway there, and I just turned around and and went home. And so here I am, age thirty-seven, going on thirty-eight, having achieved everything that I thought I wanted to do, and I wasn't capable of you know walking across the street and getting a cookie. And I thought you know that there's a lot going on here that I had never gotten to. And so to go to the book, you know, that I've, that I've now written, uh, I, I, my father was a, uh, a bombardier pilot in World War II, uh, over Germany. And in 1944, uh, in the summer he, he was flying, dropping bombs on Germany. And, uh, uh his plane, was hit by aerial gunfire, and he. Uh, there were nine crew members. Three of them were immediately killed, and he was thrown out of the plane. And according to him, he's long since dead. But according to what the story he always told, he never opened his parachute. He he came to, you know, above Germany, and uh, like eighteen thousand feet, and. Uh, he, and the shoot was open and he landed uh, and he sort of dislocated his hip which was dislocated for the rest of his life but he was picked up and the Germans took him to Stalag 13 uh, in Germany and he was a prisoner of war for a little under a year there and, and so when he came back in 45 I was born in 1950 uh, and so I grew up The Midwest is repressed anyway. I mean, it's a very small town in eastern Kansas, 900 people, and saturated with religion and repression in the early 1950s. And and my dad had PTSD before anybody knew what that was. as did many men coming back from World War II if they survived. And so in, in the household I grew up in, and I'm not, I don't mean this as a, Criticism of my parents, but it was just it, you, you couldn't talk about anything. Nothing could be talked about. Conflict was repressed. My mother would always just say, "You know, don't bring that up. Don't talk about that. Don't say that in front of your father. He's he's very nervous, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And uh, uh, and all of that was true. So as I got older, uh, late fifties, early sixties. Um, Approaching teenage years, I, you know, I would try to talk to him about his wartime experience, and he would just get up and leave the room. You know, he would not talk about anything. And so, when I part of my growing up, as described in the book, was that I I had very unsettling, repetitive nightmares. One, for example, uh, was we lived in a in a house with a basement and I would dream of, I would be going down the stairs to the basement and the basement would be <clears throat> filled with shallow water and there would be crocodiles and alligators in the water. And as I went down, you know, they'd come out of the water and snap at my feet. I mean, that's not too hard to interpret. That dream, I don't think, you know, there were things underground, there were things unexpressed. There was all of this, you know, repressed feeling. And, and so, you know, I, I got older and, and went on and, you know, lived my life and, and felt that, you know, there were things that were, you know, disturbing me at levels that I couldn't quite reach. There was anger. There was a lot of fear. i have well, got, got to uh, ask you a
0: question here, Stephen. Uh, Mark and I were talking just before the show. Are you familiar with epigenetics, epigenetics and all?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I know what the word is, and I, I know, I guess it means that uh, that that a, a, a parent can transmit probably certain emotional, emotional or psychological realities through genes. Is
0: that yeah? Yeah, a study was done on on Holocaust survivors passing on in the DNA or in the genes to the children, when, and what ends would also apply to, say, prisoners of war or anyone who had experienced this extreme trauma that your father did, that they would pass on to you genetically that your reality, your emotions, your body, whatever, would always be anticipating being in the similar situation as your father, although not knowing what it was. Now, I can identify with you to this point that my father escaped from Russia when he was nine uh, during the time of the revolution. And the Cossacks, being he was Jewish, the Cossacks would come through to kill them. And my father would be in his little swimming hole, and the bullets would come through the water, you know, just missing him, you know. And uh, uh, he'd be walking through town holding on to someone's hand, and the Cossacks would come through and kill the man who was holding on to his hand, things such as that. Yeah. And yeah. People would say, gee, Dave, you never told us what it was like growing up like a a kid in uh, Russia. And my dad would just would not talk about it. He would never talk about it. Same sort of thing. I never ask your dad about that. And then one one day, years and years later, my father-in-law said, gee, Dave, what was it like growing up as a kid in Russia? And we all just (gasps) held our breath. And my dad went, well, it was like this. And for the first time ever, mm-hmm. he said what it was like and, and told the whole thing, which was totally unexpected.
2: I, ha- um, I had an aunt that passed last year. She was a Holocaust survivor. She lived the Anne Frank life. Held You know, being uh, sequestered in uh, basements or attics. She, did, she lived the life. But once she got to the United States she never spoke of it again and then when she was diagnosed with cancer and only had a few months to live she finally sat down with a friend of the family and told her what her life was like as a child and the uh, concentration camps and the whole bit and getting to america and it's just like how did you know that she held this trauma in for 80 years
1: yeah, when well, my dad was eighty, <laughs> he went into therapy at the VA hospital in Topeka, there where I grew up. <laughs> I mean, he, he was eighty; he had three years to live, but that was a good thing, you know. He 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 had nightmares and insomnia and all that stuff his whole life, so I'm, I was very pleased. We all were very pleased to to see him actually do something. Now the thing about
0: fear of overcoming fear. Now, I know that, what it was it, about three years ago, you were told you I had a year to live?
1: Well, three years ago, I was told that I had both prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer. And prostate, as it, you probably, everybody probably knows, is, is fairly manageable, but pancreatic is, oh, yeah. is you know, not as uh, much, is much more serious. So, yeah, I was told that I had a limited, you know, future.
2: What stage did they say you were at when they were diagnosed?
1: Um, they never really put it in stages. And then, and then I went in and did a lot of chemo. I had two surgeries. Uh, so they took out the spleen and half the pancreas. Right. And then it was my brother. The yeah. prostate. And then a lot of chemo. And, uh, and then it, it went away. And, and at the end, in early to mid-2021, and then, and then it came back, and then it went into my liver, and then they said, you have a year to live. And that was about, oh, 18 months ago. So I, I'm in chemo, and I've been in chemo for two years, so it's, it is, things are getting better. So let's, let's put it that way. But i had I, you know i've written twenty five books about crime and other things, and it's always been you know a very objective type of writing for the most part, and so i i, I wanted to tell this story, but you know and then when they said, well, you don't know how long to live i thought, I better get busy yeah but, yeah I'll
0: oh, we'll yeah. write this one,
1: <laughs> yeah, I better you know so uh so I did and and i I started it and rewrote it in memorable Times and all of that, but um, so you know again, it's the first really personal thing I've ever written, and what I've always been interested in more than anything else is is violence is what you know what causes humans to be so violent and destructive. And and because, you know, there's a personal angle to that with what my dad went through. I mean, you know, we think about, well, soldiers going to war. And, I mean, this is something I would have talked to him about if he'd ever talked, but he never did. So, And we think about going to war, and then you think about being in a prison camp, and, and all those, you know, obviously tough things. But he, he may have killed thousands of people. You know, we don't know how many people he killed. But he went on 17... No, 19 bombing missions. The 20th was when they got shot out of the sky. So here he is, you know, 22 years old, 21 years old. I have a son who's 29 who doesn't seem very old. You know, (laughs) Here's that at 21, dropping, you know, the heaviest bombs they have on, on German industrial sites and other sites. And, you know, being called in, you know, to do that. That's the right thing to do, you know, but but that's that's a heavy that's a heavy thing to carry as well as a POW experience and all of that. So you know, I grew up in what would have been a very repressed environment, no matter what. But when you added that on top of it, um, it, it there was a lot residing there, you know, in the basement, so to speak. So, anyway.
2: All right, uh, just uh, chime in with your thoughts on this. Uh, there are individuals that are wolves and in charge, and everyone else is sheep. The wolves. I'm sorry? Wolves and sheep. There's the wolves running around oh. and the sheep, and the yeah. sheep just follow along. Um, when the wolf is uh, a, a psychopath, the sheep take takes their direction as tacit authorization to also be psychopaths. So you have you have, uh, for example, you have Hitler, uh, who proclaims this, you know, that Jews are an inferior race and need to be obliterated, and then you have everyone else that just followed along and took the tacit authorization of his hatred and fulfilled it. So, is is the violence inherent because you think you have approval for it? Or is it just nature for everyone?
1: Are you asking me? Yes. Um, Well, I I think... I think that you know what what we all possess are you know the better angels and the lesser angels of our nature, and you know they, they you, you you exploit or nurture you know one or the other, and and you know that's I mean that's we've seen a lot of that in our country, you know you know recently um, I'm still very hung up on the on the aftermath of 9 11 and the the war in Iraq and all of that. I mean, you know, you just you just had a president of the United States uh, encourage people to hate Muslims and hate people in that part of the world, and then you send your secretary of state to the United Nations to lie about the weapons of mass destruction, and then you go kill hundreds of thousands of people, and, you know, you get the approval of the People taking the polls, and you displace countless people, and you destabilize the most unstabilized part of the world, and you do all of that, you know, because you can. And and you know what I've learned, and what I never understood from my father's experience, because I, I, I mean, I read the rise right and fall of the Third Reich and all of that, but I didn't really understand how propaganda works. And in in the last three years or so, I've really come to understand how propaganda works, that people think they're smarter than that and can resist it, but that's really not true because it works on the emotions and not the intellect. And you can encourage people to hate other people quite easily and you can carry out violence in the name of that quite easily. And you can be forgotten doing that quite easily and George Bush can go down to Texas and paint pictures of flowers and dogs and everybody can say that's wonderful you know if you're going to have any degree of seriousness in the world if you want to be a writer if you want to do anything worthwhile you cannot forget what what happens in these circumstances. The rationalization in part for Putin invading Ukraine is because we did something similar in 2023, now 20 years ago. And so, yes, violence I don't think is inherent in the human person, but I think it's it's that anger and fear are a foundational part of the way we grow up, the way we come into... Uh, maturity They're there. They're inside of us. They can be exploited. And we have seen it over and over again. And we've seen it in more recent years, you know, where you uh, have a president of the United States and uh, COVID comes along and he immediately starts trashing Asian Americans. Well, what's happened regarding violence in Asian Americans in the last four or five years? You know, you can chart that as well. It, it has an effect. And it, and it, and it you know, floats down to other people. And so many people in the media who encourage this kind of thing, who promote it and pander to it and sell it over and over again. Some of the people that they're impacting are an at-risk population. You know, they are not stable. We've seen it over and over and over again you know, and there's no responsibility taken for it. There's no awareness that, you know, this is all one big ball of wax and you have some sort of obligation and responsibility not to encourage anger and hatred inside of people. And some of the most successful people we've seen in this culture over the last several decades do nothing but that. And they rise to the top and they have an effect. And I don't think we've, begun to penetrate the dynamics of that the responsibilities around it and so we just turn on the news or you know open our news feed on our phone and oh there's another mass shooting here well there was more violence here you know here here and here and that was always my interest in true crime is how do people get to the point you know where that's that's the best option you know that's that's what you're going to take up. There are, there are probably born psychopaths and sociopaths, somebody like BTK, but, but that's few and far between in my view. The, the vast majority of, of the violence that's committed, especially what we've seen in recent years, is by people who, who are emotionally out of control and cannot cope. And so, uh, that's a long answer, but I mean, that's the focus of what I've been trying to do since 1984. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's when I wrote the book. You know what
0: amazes me is we just had Memorial Day and we're paying homage to, you know, the, uh, the brave men and women who fought in World War II to defeat Look. the Nazis and at the same time. all oh, those Nazis are pretty good guys, you know, there's good people on both sides. Just <laughs> what I'm my hair out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's, you know, for our, our little efforts, you know, to, to stick our little finger in that big dike, you know, I mean, that's, that's what you feel like <coughs> you're doing, and often no one's paying attention and all of that, but you still feel some need to do that, you know, so anyway, that <laughs> so may sound very noble, I don't mean it that way, I just... No, I just think it's uh, something we need to do.
2: When you started to write the book, did you have a preconceived idea of where the book was going to go? Which and
1: how book? did did, oh, any anything,
2: did anything change as you as you worked through the material?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, the 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 most exciting part of writing a book is is figuring out the structure of it. So if you go back to the first book I wrote, Talk to Death, where you have two distinct storylines. One is the life history of Alan Bird, and he's an absolutely fascinating character, growing up in Chicago and uh, having problems with his father, and uh, just a real psychological uh, matrix there that, that was fascinating. Um, and so you progress through his life. I mean, his life alone, just becoming an alcoholic at an early age and, and looking like he would he, yeah, I know. he would uh, be, be a total failure. Uh, he had bottom, came to Denver, started over, and was just an absolute natural on the radio at, at provoking people. And in some ways it cost him his life. Then you have the other side of these basically nine guys who... Live up in the Northwest and read the Turner Diaries that I referred to and decide, well, let's turn that into real life. Let's, let's assassinate minorities, Jews, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and start our white power revolution. And so in, in putting together the book, I wanted to make it like a braid of hair, you know, that, that you, have, you will start with Berg, and take that up to a certain point. Uh, And then you will go to these guys and, and take that up to a certain point as the right became more radical in the late 1970s and early 80s. And they started to talk about violent revolution as opposed to just white supremacy. And then you go back to Berg and you get him on the radio and you get all the controversial things he's doing. And then you get to the order and the first crimes they commit. And so about two-thirds of the way through the book, they collide. You know, both the stories come together where he's in front of his home townhouse in Denver on a Monday night in June 1984, and, you know, he steps out of that Volkswagen, and they're there, you know, waiting to gun him down. And that leads to the largest investigation into domestic terrorism in American history up to that point, and because the group committed 240 crimes, not just one murder. And so, I, I begin with the idea of figuring out how to weave two narratives together in a way that wouldn't be too jarring to a reader, and would hopefully, you know, build into some. Bigger and more dramatic narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, storytelling is, you know, is what turns me on. I mean, you've got the crime and you've got the people and you've got the courts and the police and all of that. But how do you, you know, people think fiction is just creative writing, but it's not. There's a lot of creative writing in nonfiction. And and how do you do that? How do you make that work? So I, I always try to begin with, with that concept in mind you know to to in the book i wrote about the assassination of dr george tiller in wichita who was the nation's most uh, prominent and notorious abortion doctor again i had i had his story dr tiller's story and then i had the story of the man who killed him who was very quickly arrested. But I got to his wife, the killer's wife, and she was absolutely fantastic and she knew his entire evolution. And so I used a somewhat similar technique to to show how a a seemingly sort of normal person becomes an assassin and how a doctor who's operating (laughs) under the laws of the United States becomes an assassination target. And, and that's, you know, I, I, I was, you try to create the maximum impact of the story, you know, without being preachy about it. And say, you know, when you spew all this hatred and this racism or everything else out from your mainstream media on a daily basis, it hit this, the, the killer in this case. And he felt justified Absolutely morally justified right. in killing the doctor because people in the state government, people on the media, uh, Bill O'Reilly was the, the, the most prominent. He went on the television on Fox. He spoke to 3.5 million people a night. He said Tiller the Baby Killer over and over and over again on his program, and how, you know. And then when Teller gets killed, he says, you know, it has nothing to do with me. You know, right. I, what do I know about that? I mean, this is the bullshit that we have promoted in this culture and this media over the last 20 or 30 years. And if you think it doesn't have an effect, you know, you're unbelievably naive. Well, sure, there's
0: that guy that went into the pizza parlor where supposedly Hillary Clinton was running uh, human trafficking yeah. out of the basement of the pizza parlor. And it was, they didn't even have a basement. <laughs> In his yeah, basement, yeah, where yeah. he goes in there and kills three people. Yeah,
1: and I totally, like, like Berg himself, I totally support freedom of speech, and that's not my point. My point is that you, you, you need some awareness of the effect that you're having on yourself, on those around you, on the culture. That's, you know, we've gone the other direction. We pay Tucker Carlson twenty million dollars a year to go on television and and I mean and say the 2020 election was stolen when they know it isn't true. They absolutely unconditionally know that's falsehood. So anyway, that's a bit far afield maybe from certain things, but it's just it's the pervasive thing in the culture. So anyway,
0: well that's why not on the air in Canada, because it's against the law to lie and call it news in Canada. Do what? Do what? In Canada, it is against the law to lie and call it news. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you mm-hmm. will not find OAN or Fox uh, allowed on the air in Canada. <laughs> it's a tragic story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the original yeah. idea in America on the news was supposedly. Canada is run by a fascist. It example. is, yes, that's well, true. Okay, so, so then. You, but your that statement holds no water. No, but it is true that it's against the law in Canada to yeah, do that. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. But now, in America, right. originally the idea was that news would not be, first of all, not under the entertainment division and would not have advertising and would be shall we say immune from any uh, external pressure external pressure from advertisers or political parties, whatever, be totally you know uh, independent, Independent. Yeah. however that isn't what happened <laughs> it was, right. uh, had sponsorships so they had to be careful they didn't defend any sponsors and then it wound up under the entertainment division in the United States, which it didn't used to be you had a new, separate news division right. and a separate right. entertainment division now, news is under the entertainment division, so which makes yeah. an entirely different situation. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, do you think that um, the shift over the last, say, thirty-five years uh, to instant news availability has provided some with more of an incentive to be violent?
1: I I think it's an, I think it's provided an incentive to be sort of stupid, you know, to be <laughs> blunt about it. I, I don't I, I don't. <clears throat> One of the things when you write books, uh, and we all probably had some of the same experience, but I've written about you know some very high profile cases, and of course what you have in those cases is. A crime occurs, all the talking heads rush in, jump to conclusions, Mm -hmm. over and over again, broadcast it every day, amplify it every way they can. And that becomes reality. If you write a book, you know, you actually don't swallow all those assumptions. You go in and you do some investigation and you do some research and you look at the evidence and you attend court proceedings and you listen to testimony and you look for uh, contradictions or things that don't hold up. And you you discover in some cases, not in all, but you, you discover more complexity. You know, you discover more unanswered questions and things of that nature. That began to be obliterated, you know, in the 1990s in the United States, the whole process of it. And so you can stand outside and write a book, but, you know, the irony is that these are the cases that are covered more than any cases ever in history, ever. And nobody knows anything about them. They don't actually know anything what they have is what the purveyors of the programs have which is an opinion
0: and you know what and the fbi has issued and i've referred to this on, on my blog the fbi despises these talking heads talking about cases that are still underway because you because the audience does not differentiate between someone blabbing their uninformed opinion and an expert the pseudo expert and also the perpetrator of the crime, if it's an unsolved case, could be watching the show. (laughs) And they could destroy evidence, they could kill somebody else, people jump to conclusions. We had that situation when uh, Mark Furman was on the radio in Spokane at the time of the Spokane Serial Killer, and he was ranting about things that weren't true, interfering with the case, causing great fear and agitation among the families of the victims, and the cops were pulling their hair out. They couldn't stop him because of freedom of speech, of course, but he was really interfering with actually solving the case.
1: There's no awareness. I don't, I mean, unless you just want to be an asshole. I mean, there's no awareness of the effect that you're having. I mean, it actually matters. It actually makes a difference. And for, you know, for criminal cases and for other situations, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's overrun, you know, journalism. It's overrun, uh, you know, in some cases, due process. And it's just, I mean, that's sort of been things that I've been writing about for a long time. So.
0: It's very yeah. problematic. We did a whole episode with uh, Frank Junior on uh, ethical journalism and what does the Netherlands do in this current climate?
2: Uh, it should be very yeah. difficult. He gets, sh- he gets drowned out by everyone else that's shouting. Well, you
1: know, and, and sometimes the answer in criminal cases is, I don't know. Yeah. Believe it or not. I mean, that can be the answer, but that doesn't sell. You know, you have to go out there and say, yeah, Burke Ramsey, age nine, killed his sister. He figured out how to, you know, create very complex knots to create a garage. He figured out how to burn her with a stun gun. And he figured out how to write a 267-page ransom note. Yeah, that's what he did. And And CBS puts it on television and gets sued by John Ramsey for $750 million. And, of course... They probably settled for $5 million and, and the show's worth it. And I run into people all the time. You know, I wrote a book about this, and they said, well, I'm, I know Berg did it, you know. Well, <laughs> they don't know anything. They yeah. We
0: had a problem. who was watching, what's her name, Nancy Grace. He was saying, well, the, if the evidence that was found in the car, and he's screaming at the TV, what evidence? What car? <laughs> it's his case.
1: And they're talking about
0: something that didn't even
1: exist. Yeah. Yeah, but those are the people who succeeded. I mean, that's the top of the the heap in some ways, and so you know, it's uh, you just kind of keep nudging your nose forward and trying to do something useful.
0: You know what yeah. I thought was fascinating was that years ago Tucker Carlson spoke at uh, CPAC, and he advocated. He said that the that they should be one hundred percent transparent in any news presentations of 100% honesty, that if they weren't honest, if they made stuff up, etc., etc., et cetera, it would totally destroy their credibility, and he got booed at CPAC for doing that. And he had, a, well, I can't remember the name of his uh, uh, group or his organization or whatever, and he got so fed up, he went the other direction, started making stuff up, became very successful. It was like, oh yeah, this is what you want. He was really mad. And upset because he advocated for total truth and transparency.
1: Yeah.
0: Well,
1: yeah. That's, that's hard. That's off road.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a rough so, business for the gentleman. So um, what what do you want the reader of The Heart of Violence by Stephen Singular, what do you want the reader to, to take away from the book?
1: What I want the reader to take away is that the violence that is done, uh, it, it, I, I, I mean, I'm speaking personally about it. I don't want to generalize too much, but the, the, those things are handed out or said, you know, epigenetically or psychologically or emotionally. I was about 40 years old when I discovered, and this is basically the story of the book, that my emotions were essentially not my own. That they were my fathers, that I had that that I had absorbed those and worn those and acted those out for about almost forty years, not quite. And through some experiences in the book, which I write about in depth, where I got something that went far beyond conventional therapy, and in some very unconventional arenas, I in my own mind, was able to access some of the parts of me that were unconscious. And I realized that that trauma was inside of me. And I had a very difficult time making anything work outside of writing in terms of emotional connections to women and, you know, things like that. I was married and got a divorce, et cetera. And so that... That that is part of what I was trying to convey. That that stuff is when you commit violence, when you perpetrate it consciously or unconsciously. This stuff is a long, long time, and people act it out and act out things they're not even remotely aware of where it comes from. And so that that was part of, of what I wanted to write. And you know, and, and I touch upon some of the things we're talking about here, where people just have no. Concept of the effect they're having on a society by by spearing those emotions. I mean, I started writing, in, again in 1984, just stumbling it resurface again. You know, in our culture, it's not occurring in a vacuum. You know, it's not happening. It's it's happening when you put white nationalists in the White House. As we were there a few years ago, and they hold those beliefs, it happens when you know hate crimes increase dramatically during that period, or hate groups, because that's what you're promoting, and so that's that's part of, of what I wanted to convey. Uh, but it, it's it's really about a psychological and emotional journey to understanding. You know, where my anger came from, where my fear came from, you know, what, where the potential for violence in me came from, because I had that potential. When I was younger, not so much now, I don't think, but I, I was very angry about certain things, and I didn't know why. I really didn't understand where all the fear came from. I wasn't World War II. I wasn't a, a prison camp, but I had these things inside, and they and they were deep, and they could not be rooted out by any conventional means I could, I could discover. But then something happened, and all of that changed, and I began to you know, I believe access parts of myself that I did not even know existed. And that helped me, you know, come through sort of the tunnel here and to be able to, to, you know, to do something with that. And I think to have a better life over the last 30 some years as a result of that. So, you know, all of it, You know, I believe that most of the violence that we see in our society is committed by people who cannot control their emotional reality, cannot become aware of it. I mean, every mass shooting you've ever seen, have you ever read one that said, well, he killed all those people and he got $100,000 or he accomplished? No. It's pure rage. They're purely rage crimes, and that's something relatively new in our culture. And that's over the last 30 or 40 years, and you can chart the growth of it very easily. you know. And so that's from, coming from the foundation of instability in this society, and we're all participants with it, each and every one of us. How do we choose to participate with it? You know, whether you're aware of it or whether you're not aware of it, it makes a difference. I realize that if I was not in control of myself emotionally, it would have a political and social effect. We try to separate these things in the culture. You know, there's spirituality over here where you, you know, try to get in touch with your version of God or spirit or whatever you want to call it. And there's politics over here and social issues. The book is saying no. They're tied together. You're having an effect one way or the other. But are you aware of what that effect might be? And until I was willing to go in depth and, and say, okay, I've really got this anger. I've really got this fear. And it's impeding my life. It's impeding my growth. And and I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to add to the violence. And a smaller thing as that might be, one person saying that, you know, that, that, was what I wanted to do. I mean, Burl has put up things about his spirituality, uh, if that's the right word, and, you know, and I I totally support that. I wrote the message. What that means is that I was afraid to write it. You know, I'm a journalist. You know, journalists don't talk about spirituality. Journalists don't talk about God or conceptions of God or things like that. We can only write about who, what, why, where, how. You know, that's it. And I said, well, shit, if I've got a year to live, this is what I really believe, and I've always been afraid to express it, you know, because it doesn't play in the hard edge world of journalism. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked at the Denver Post and have been around. Journalist my whole life, and then people just make fun of it. You know, it's just it's just a, a laugh. And but I didn't feel like there was that much to lose anymore. And I yeah. so I hope
0: that yeah. What have you got to lose? <laughs> you know, uh, what? Well, as Bob Dylan says, when well, you think you got nothing left to lose, you can always lose a little bit more. So you might as well just go ahead and do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hmm that's right he also said if my thought dreams could we'd be seen, seen he probably put my probably head, put my head in the guillotine
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I love Bob so, Dylan yeah well congratulations yeah. on the book and I'm glad you're still alive because thank otherwise you. we'd be having this show through a Ouija board <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> or a trance medium or something like that I, you, oh. you probably have another book in you so I think as long as you're still writing uh, that might keep you alive.
1: Yeah, I think there's truth in that, you know, keep creating, yeah. you know, don't just cause you have cancer, you know, there's a whole bunch of the rest of you that's okay, Yeah. you know, it's just something in your stomach, you know, it's not the whole package here that, <laughs> that yeah, that's, well, I'm, you I'm know, still knock, waiting knock for my,
0: my PT scan, of, what was it, uh, over a month ago, a month and a half ago, the doctor said, we need to get a, a, a biopsy or a PT scan on you immediately to see how bad this is. And then I've been waiting all this time for well, them to find the, the right place. Oh, gee, we made a mistake on the insurance,
1: you know. Yeah. That's rough, man, that, that's very rough to, to go through. Yeah. I, hope awesome. you, I hope you're okay, I hope you both are. Yeah,
2: well, I, all right. I,
1: I got
0: a book to finish, so I have to stay alive long enough to do that. I got That'd two books to finish, so. Mm-hmm.
2: The yeah. book is yeah. The Heart of Violence, Stephen Singular. Read it, buy it, yes. believe it.
0: Yeah, and buy the next the book, one, too.
2: See ya. Uh, <laughs> Thanks,
0: Stephensingular.com. Uh, Stephensingular.com. Uh, uh, buy all the books. Thanks for being on the show. We'll have you on again.
2: Hey, Burl. Yeah.
0: What's Thanks next? Guys.